Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast, where we give you a free glimpse of one of our amazing webinars or conferences. You can check out one of our full sessions and get a 50% discount by using the code FEPODCAST at fundraisingeverywhere.com. Yeah, go to fundraisingeverywhere.com and use the code FEPODCAST to get 50% off any of our tickets. Fundraising everywhere. 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 You need to add me in there. Hi, everybody. My name is Nikki Bell, and I'm one of the co-founders of Fundraising Everywhere and Everywhere Plus. And welcome to today's event, where we are going to be learning all about recruiting talent in the charity sector in 2022. This event came around because both our styles, Fundraising Everywhere and Enthuse, were having a conversation about recruitment and how tough we were finding it. And we realized that there's actually way more things that we could do to improve how we recruit talent into our organizations and not just in the recruitment process, but within the organizations themselves. And we realized that we didn't have all of the answers. So whilst we went away and found the answers from fantastic people who were going to be joining us as panelists today, we would share those findings and conversations with you in real time. And that's exactly what today is about. So thank you to Enthuse for making today possible. And thanks to all of the panelists for giving their time and expertise. Um, at Fundraising Everywhere, some of the things that we've been doing in our recruitment practices is just making it as open and transparent and as human as possible. So when we were recruiting our first team members in 2021, uh, we were sending questions in advance. We were keeping the job descriptions limited to just the requirements that were needed. So we weren't asking for um, qualifications. We were shown the salary, all of those things that should be there as a given. Um, but unfortunately, what we're seeing in the charity sector is when job roles are advertised, it's just let's update the date on that, get it out there in the same way. And there's not a lot of innovation there. So we just want to shake things up uh, today. Um, and the people that we're going to be hearing from have had experience both on the recruitment side and on the job seekers side. So I'm very, very excited for them to share with us everything that they know. This is live. So if you have any questions for today's panelists, please do pop them in the chat box, which is there on the right hand side. We will try to get through as many as we can. Um, any that we don't get to, we'll make sure that we follow up with that in some medium, whether we you know, answer the questions on social media or we put them out in the next every week. We'll, we'll, we'll think of something to get those answers to you. And uh, we are hosting today's event on the Everywhere Plus platform, which is the virtual event platform for the charity sector. Um, and there are some tools on there for accessibility. If you do have them, there's buttons underneath the video and there's ways to interact with both us and the team in whatever way is comfortable for you. So I'm going to bring our panellists on one by one and just hear from them very quickly uh, about their experience uh, in relation to this event then we'll go through and ask some questions of them to get the conversation going and then we would love to hear from you and today is being recorded so if you do need to nip out if you have a job interview that you need to jump into um, or you're just furiously making notes and you've missed something then there will be an opportunity for you to come back to this at a later date and we'll get this recording sent out to you as soon as we possibly can 
um, after today. So I'm going to go through and we're going to uh, hear who our panellists are now. And I'm going to start with uh, Nino Parsitam, who is the creative director and co-founder of We Are Stripes, who are a recruitment agency. And we'll hear from Nene all about their experience with recruitment. Hello. Hi. 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 Nikki, hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, yeah, just a little bit about me. I'm a creative director um, in and an art director as well in advertising and advertising the sector I've been in for the past, say, 19 years or so. Um, I'm also the co-founder of We Are Stripes, as Nikki mentioned, uh, alongside my other co-founders, uh, Kama Davis and Hayden Kouros. I have to mention them because they're awesome. And from its inception, uh, We Are Stripes was created to kind of like understand and address the imbalance of ethnically diverse talent in the creative sector. And then we started with advertising because that's, as I mentioned, that's my sector. But we've now moved on to cover a, a, almost a whole spectrum of design, um, the design industry. So looking at VFX, um, tech, animation, and, and design. What we do as a company, we're quite a bit of a hybrid company, and what we do is that we provide visibility of talent and roles in the industry. Uh, we also offer um, consultancy and education on various DNI challenges that a company may have. We realize that every company is different and they have different challenges, and we always put solutions together to, to, uh, to mitigate those challenges. And we also have a dedicated uh, recruitment arm, which is headed up by the brilliant Andrew Francis. And we've worked with over 40 companies now, including uh, Group M, Disney, Microsoft and Telegraph, just to just to name a few. Thank you. Welcome. And Open as well, which is where I met you. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Add them to the list as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, some of no, the uh, some of the pieces of advice that you gave to, to myself and Ali when we were doing the recruitment with Open was just amazing and, and spot on around positioning and what we should be doing to make these roles actually seem exciting to, to people to apply. So really excited to hear from you uh, today about what charities can do to, to learn from that um, after working with those big organisations like Disney. Microsoft um, and, and so on. Um, so next panelist we have is Emily Casson, who's the digital marketing and fundraising manager at the Salvation Army um, and uh, best known, I think, for the awesome recruitment work that you were doing at Cats Protection. Right, Emily? Yeah. yeah. So I've been at uh, Salvation Army for six months now, but previously I was at Cats Protection for eight years. So I started from regional fundraising and then built up the digital fundraising team. Like Nikki was saying before, I was kind of known for building that as a remote first team, kind of way before it was fashionable, and everybody jumped on that bandwagon and built up a team of 12 there. I'm also chair of the Institute of Fundraising in the Northeast, and you can probably tell from the accent, a very proud Geordie, and an EDI committee member for the CIOF. That over the last three years, I've kind of sifted through two and a half thousand odd applications, so I've got a lot of experience with recruiting and can share my perspective on that today. And I'm also hiring. The closing date is today, so get your applications in quick. And I will be doing a lot more recruitment in the near future as well. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so amazing work. And fellow Northerners, always mm -hmm. good to... To have them on here. And you're around the corner from me as well, which is quite nice. We should have just like streamed this in together. Uh, that would have been lovely. Thank you for joining us, Emily. Uh, next, we have Louise Tullen, who is the Chief Marketing Officer and now, I guess, HR Pro for Enthuse. Hi, Louise. Hello. 
Uh, nice to see you, everyone. Great to be here today. Uh, and thanks to Nikki uh, for putting everything together. Um, I hope we will learn lots from this experience today. But um, yeah, so um, I work at Infuse. We're a fundraising platform. I've worked in marketing for 15 years. Uh, and about six months ago, I was asked to head up the people function as well. Um, so Infuse received its Series A funding. And uh, part of that investment was to expand the product set and to launch into different markets. But of course, none of that can be done without the people behind it. So um, we're expanding the team from about 50 to 110 within one financial year, which um, brings a huge opportunity, but also uh, lots and lots of challenges. So it's great to be here today. Thank you. And thank you for making today possible. Uh, so Enthuse have uh, sponsored uh, today's event and we are going to be using that to pay all of our speakers as we do on every event that we do. But also just for being like open about how hard it's it's been and i guess one of the things that i've been learning as i've been speaking with with some of our experts and in the sector is it's hard but maybe we're just not working hard enough and that's why it's hard and um, so we need to think differently and creatively and that's exactly what we're going to be doing today and it's just nice to admit that we don't have all the answers but we're willing to yeah. to learn so thank you very much uh next we have uh joe mcginnis uh who's actually gone further north than me and emily uh, could could ever do and she is the head of philanthropy at children first uh, so welcome joe hi thank you yeah, so I have been in the sector for 15 years and I've always been remote based. So similar to Emily, I'm really comfortable recruiting and managing people in that space. I moved to Scotland and to Children First to take up the head of philanthropy and partnerships role in December. So still very much finding my feet and exploring here, but it's it's amazing. Recommend it to anybody. Um, prior to that, I was one of two heads of regional fundraising at a large health charity and our roles were made redundant in April last year. So I ended up job hunting between April and October. Um, I put forward over 30 applications. I ended up accepting three roles, including the one that I'm in. Um, but I left one within three weeks and one within four months. So during that time, I learned a whole lot about myself, but about being a, a job seeker, being a candidate, starting at new roles. Um, and of course, in my role, I'm, I'm also a recruiting manager with a role live now. So I'm always trying to implement better practice that I've picked up uh, from the sector and from my own experience. Um, and then across the sector, I started managers meetups with a sector friend, Emma Russ, and together we also manage fundraising chat. Thank you. So not busy at all then. <laughs> Loads of spare time to join us today. Cool. Thank you, Joe. And I'll, I'll come back to you as well about that experience and perhaps like why you pulled out of those, because I think learning from what they did wrong is, is going to be uh, great for us um, today. But likewise, I'd love to, to hear what made you move to children first, like all the way up in Scotland, because like that must have been a great recruitment process to feel so like bang into that one. So that's great. Um, and then finally, uh, our next panelist is Amari Okwulu, who is the grants team administrator at the London Community Foundation and a fellow job seeker. Welcome. Hi, Nikki. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Um, my name is Amari and I'm the Grant Team Administrator at LCF. I've been working in the charity sector for six years in a range of programme and programme assistant roles. So this is my first grants uh, team, grants administrator uh, role in grant making. Um, I'll be speaking about my experience as a job seeker today in the charity sector. I've been, quite a few, I've been through quite a few different um, recruitment processes, but my most recent one has been the best one to date. And I definitely think there are um, practices that I think recruiters can take away to uh, encourage more, more, more talent and especially diverse talent um, and bring that into the sector. 
Um, so I'm really keen to learn from what the challenges are and maybe share some insights that help people make better recruitment decisions and processes to attract people who want to work at their organisations. Fab, thank you. And you're like three days into this role. Um, Brand new. <laughs> so again, thank you so much for taking the time out uh, to, to join us this week. And I understand that your employers are here watching today as well. So you've got a fantastic recruiter uh, and I'm really excited um, for you all to get stuck in. Um, so we'll jump straight in for today's event. We've got some people uh, that are there attending on the public side. So if you do have questions, please pop them into the chat box and we'll make sure that our panellists can get through to them today. Um, but I'll just uh, kick off with some questions that we've um, pulled together as a team and understanding um, the challenges of the uh, the people who are involved in our community already. Um, and I thought it would just be good to start with the problem, I guess, and, and, and work from there. Um, so Emily, um, as you mentioned, you were responsible for like tripling the team size of cast protection and you've had hundreds of applications per role. When you're going into these teams and like you have in, in your current role and, and you, you start recruiting, what challenges do you do you come up against there and, and what did you do to push past those and, and start to actually make progress? Yeah, thanks, Nikki. But yeah, there has been a few challenges. I think one of the most common ones you come across is a very office-heavy culture. So even if they kind of allow remote working, it's more seen as a Friday perk rather than what should be kind of business as usual and is pretty standard nowadays it's not really seen as the norm so that was definitely something I changed when recruiting and now kind of my default is remote I always give people the option if they want to be in an office because some people do prefer that environment they are more than welcome to kind of do that and I think one of the other big challenges is that often, particularly when recruiting digital people, we're wanting to do digital transformation and change things, but the HR process itself hasn't gone through digital transformation. And like some people mentioned earlier, that a lot of the processes haven't changed for years, that it's certainly the case that a lot of people just recycle the same job descriptions, they've got the same process that's used for years. Whereas it's such a candidate's market out there, I think it's really important that we actually think how do we make it easy and simple and inclusive as possible? And how do we address some of the wider cultural things across the sector around people need to be visible in the office or my biggest bugbear at the minute, people advertising remote roles that still require you to be in London one day a week, which is just not feasible. So I think the biggest things I changed was around that culture. And I think that I was doing this kind of years and years ago, obviously it really accelerated over the last couple of years, but I think when people saw that actually me and my team were very visible and we were getting stuff done and working in digital and fundraising, it is a very results-driven area. So it's pretty easy to tell, are we performing well or not? So we did end up getting hundreds and hundreds of applications that my record is 526 applications for a two-week job live for an assistant role which has other challenges around sifting it down. But at the same time, one of my competitors was advertising with a slightly higher salary, a really similar office-based role, and they got five applicants. So that's the scale of difference. It's definitely narrowed now. Remote working has become more common. But I used to get so many applications from people outside London, desperate and really talented, talented people, but didn't want to work in London or didn't want to do the commute. And so I think it's really important and also to address as an organisation, how do you 
become a remote first organization how do you have all the tools and we're all very very used to video calls and teams and things nowadays but how do you ensure that you're really getting that collaboration and I think the other thing I'd say I'd really changed was around how we promoted the roles that previously we did have a kind of corporate Twitter account but it's very much a corporate Twitter account whereas I've recruited a lot of people based from Twitter and sometimes LinkedIn but Twitter especially just from people sharing my tweets I've never hired anybody I've known so it's certainly not just my personal networks but I think it's really important to be very human on that that one of my kind of candidates applied who ended up getting the job because she saw my rant about how digital managers shouldn't be addressed as sir because people used to write me job applications saying dear sir presuming because I was in a manager role I was male and she saw my rant about how horrible this was and she actually applied because she's like right that's the kind of culture I want to work in and I've had other people apply off the back of hearing me talk about remote working so I think it's really important to actually be human and not too corporate when you're advertising so I think they're the kind of really key things that I changed. Uh, you, you couldn't see me because I was behind. But when you mentioned that sir thing, my face looked like this. <laughs> so especially on a panel like this, we're like, absolutely not. Let's stop that. Um, something that you picked up on there. Absolutely. That was something that we, we should have covered at the beginning about the fact that it is like a job seekers market out there. You know, with a lot more roles going remote, there is a lot more flexibility there and people are having to do more to recruit people and it doesn't always come down to money and I think that's obviously as a charity sector we can struggle with isn't it like you know we don't have a lot of money for roles sometimes so it's like what else can we do to to bring this this talent in and um, before I move on Emily how do you if you have like hundreds of roles per hundreds of applications per role when you get to like application 526 how do you make sure that you're giving the same level of attention to that person as you are that you reviewed like at number five how do you keep that fair? Yeah, I think that is a real challenge when you're dealing with that sort of volume. And I think one of the things we always did was have a really clear shortlisting grid. So we'd be really clear on what we were scoring people on and what the priorities were and sometimes have a tiebreaker within that. Because I'll be honest, in a lot of those cases, a lot of those people could have done the job. They were pretty high caliber applicants. And so it's difficult to give feedback in those circumstances but it is important to have fresh eyes on it. So I'd say make sure it's not just you doing the sifting and have an awful lot, lot of cups of tea, I think, is one of my big tips. And also become fresh to it and take breaks while you're doing it and really think about, okay, what do you need the person in this role to be able to do? And from a candidate's point of view, it's what can you do to make your application either stand out or be as easy to read as possible. If you send in a 10-page CV then with the best will in the world, if somebody's sifting through a lot of candidates, then that's not going to help. So it's making sure everything is really smooth and you follow the instructions. Sweet. Thank you, Emily. Appreciate that. And yes, obviously, after everybody has been to today's webinar, they are going to be getting 500 plus applications per role. So it's good that you've given those insights there to, to help them when, when it gets to that point. You mentioned about um, recruitment and using videos and someone that's really good at that uh, is Joe, because I saw um, that you did that in one of your in your previous roles. But now from the other side, you've been involved in quite a hefty job seekers process, uh, I guess. And obviously you have pulled out of, of two of those. What do you see charities doing wrong with their recruitment? And if you're able to, can you share a bit more about why you pulled out of, of, of those uh, job processes? Yeah, sure. So... 
I left the two roles for vastly different reasons. Obviously, one I stuck out um, for four plus months, um, and that was a um, a temporary contract. So I was very much looking for a permanent role. However, there were elements of uh, what Emily mentioned, uh, where they were a, a London-based NHS charity that um, required somebody to be in the office uh, two plus days a week, which was something that being based in the Midlands at that time, I just couldn't commit to. Everything else about the role was really good. So I think that is something that organisations are going to really limit themselves if they continue with that. So that's one of the reasons why I left that place because it just wasn't sustainable for me or for the organisation with what they wanted long term. Uh, the other role is entirely different um, kettle of fish. So I'll come on to a little bit about why I, I left that and the red flags I wish I'd paid more attention to during the recruitment process. So some of the things that have really been red flags to me while I've been going through the, the job hunting were, I mean, we're starting off with real basics. Show the salary. Like I've got bills to pay. I need to know how much I'm going to be paid if I was successful. And there's still so many organisations falling at the very first hurdle. But we are getting better at that. Uh, which is good and then the whole remote based I've been remotely based ever since I joined the charity um, when I joined as a community fundraiser at Cancer Research UK there all the f community fundraisers were already remote based they were properly leading the way there and so it's really disheartening to see people still actually meaning hybrid working and requiring people to be geographically um, close to an office, whether it's in London or another major city, um, rather than opening that pool of people after we've literally proved for the past two years that we can do it remotely. Um, so that was that's something that I would always look for and my heart would sink when I'd filter by remote working and then click on an application only to find uh, on an advert only to find that they meant remote for three days a week and in, in London or, or elsewhere for, for two. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's limiting accessibility uh, and all of that sort of thing. So as a recruiting manager now, I would, you know, if I say remote, I mean remote. And that was one of the reasons um, why I found a red flag in, in the role that I left after three weeks, because in one of the conversations I had prior to accepting the role, uh, the recruiting manager, I asked why do I need to be in the office for, for two days a week in London? And the first response out of their mouth was, well, we have an office building and our trustees are really disappointed that we're not using it fully at the moment, which just like, roll your eyes, that's just not good enough. And then when I pushed further, um, some of the other reasons behind it were needing to be there to meet people at short notice and that I'd have a team to manage which just was you know, classic presenteeism and actually both of those concerns can be addressed with good management good time um, planning um, and firstly operating from a position of trust which that was a thread that ran throughout that that um, that job so uh, that just wasn't there and then some of the other things that I would automatically check for because they'd be red flags if they were there were unnecessary educational requirements. So I don't have a degree. I've managed to get this far without one. Um, but immediately, as soon as I look at a job description on the person spec, that would be the first thing that I'd go to after remote working and, and salary um, because I want to know whether I'm going to fall at the first hurdle when I apply. 
So if the job requires a degree, and I, I can't see any justification for that, or gives the vague um, equivalent experience without defining what they mean by that and what they're actually looking for, then I'm immediately turned off. Because for me, that's really demonstrative that the recruiting manager hasn't spent any time really thinking carefully about the skills and experience that they want or that they need. And it feels like it feels like lazy shorthand um, that not everybody actually understands. So again, it's just a bit exclusionary. Um, and one of the other things was that I always took up the offer of a conversation with the recruiting manager if it was there. So of the 30 plus applications, um, 17 offered uh, conversations, um, but the majority of those were with recruiters rather than uh, the recruiting manager. Um, I, yeah, I spoke to 17, but only four were the actual direct recruiting managers. But even so, I found that to, on the whole, be so helpful, both in terms of understanding more about the role from my perspective and my potential fit, uh, but also in preparing for any next stages. So I feel like that's something that if that's not there, I'm immediately disappointed. And I think, well, why don't they want to offer that? Why don't they want to invest that time for the candidate? Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's a few things. Uh, just quite not just a few things that's loads of helpful things there so and thank you for giving an example of what people can do because already I, I I can uh, identify some recruitment processes where the um, the offer of a call uh, wasn't given one thing that we did and, and some people did actually take it up as we offered um, references for both me and, and Simon um, so that people could get in touch with people that had worked with us before just to see what we were like because obviously in calls we can say whatever can't we but it's always nice to just hear from people that have worked with them directly so that's another one to, to add to that um, before I come across to you Amari about um, your fellow um, job seeker um, experience just to put this question out to everybody because I was thinking there of who I could direct it to but I actually think you've, you've all got something you could add to this it sounds like quite a lot of the the issues can stem from internal culture and behaviors and actually moving away from some archaic processes that just make things really difficult and I, I feel like that's a theme sometimes in charities does anyone have any experience of when you've worked with supporting teams in a recruitment processes to get past those things um anybody Maybe that's talent in itself. <laughs> no I, I don't mind sharing because I'm, I'm really proud really of the yeah. current HR, HR team, team for being for open being to making some changes. So I'm recruiting at the moment at Children First, got a number of roles out. Um, and one of the things I didn't enjoy about my application um, process here was um, they have a, a separate Word document that you have to fill in as an application. And as a candidate, it's just so painful because you've got all that information in your CV, in covering letters that you've carefully crafted time and time again. You literally have to copy and paste and then the formatting doesn't work. And if people are doing it on tablets, it's even more painful. So in advance of going out with these, I went to HR and basically put forward the case to, to not do that and to simply ask for supporting statements and CVs, which I understand there are issues with them as well however it's in perfect system um, and put the case across and they came back with some concerns around how would we ensure that we were still consistent with our grading and being able to shortlist but by having that dialogue and being prepared to answer their concerns and, and say well this is a trial we can see what works for you what works for us they've agreed to that so that we can we can move forward hopefully without that in place because from a candidate's perspective it's really annoying thank you thank you and there's some people giving like virtual cheers and here here in the 
comment section um, on the event page as well. I think it's Sarah Goddard is like giving you some virtual applause uh, just to, to pass that on. Um, so Amari, for yourself as a fellow job seeker, can you tell us a little bit about that process that you went through and especially what made you feel confident and comfortable to take the eventual role that you've that you've gone into now? Yeah, I can also I, touch on some of the um, touch on the question that you asked before in my uh, answer. And I felt really confident and comfortable in applying for the role that I have, because uh, even though I come from a programs assistant and project management background and don't have any direct grant making experience, I felt really confident because of the process that I went through or the, the, LC, uh, the LCF's um, recruitment process. So one thing that I found really helpful in um in in really helpful is that they used um applied which is a skill-based hiring platform this is the first time i've ever applied using the platform um it takes out all the faff so like um sorry joe joe said earlier about kind of having doing a uh, uploading a cv and then then doing a word a document form um there was none of that i didn't have to upload a cv and a cover letter or a um do an application form i answered three questions that were related to the role and that demonstrated my skills and ability to do some of the tasks that I might be expected to do in the job. Um, they also shared the questions for the first stage interview, which was really helpful. So 24 hours before my first interview, I had access to the questions so I could prepare my answers, think about what I want, might want to share. And that meant I could actually bring my best self to the interview and not kind of, you know, this kind of really nervous, trying to be perfect self. I could just Kind of share things that I thought might be relevant and if they thought my answers were good I'd progress to the second stage. Um, I also had an opportunity to meet the staff um, beforehand if I wanted to and they were also really really transparent about any everything throughout the process if there were any, any changes like maybe a time change or a date change of, of when things might happen I'd be informed straight away and I found that really really helpful. I think a lot of the time um, recruiters can just kind of you know, maybe ch make changes and say, oh, can you make this time or can you do this and can you do that and not consider that applicants also have lives outside of trying to find a job. So I found that really helpful. Um, I think other things that made me feel really confident is that it's an entry level role. So I could go into the role knowing that I don't know everything. Um, I have an opportunity to learn, but also that they support me to do so. Um, everything in the recruitment pack kind of felt like they were doing their best to be inclusive and improve processes to make it, you know, um, helpful to candidates who are applying that might not kind of go for a role like this but you know encourage them to if they hadn't had like an ex you know um, previous experience Thank you. That's really good. And I love as well that suggestion around sending the questions out to people in advance. I don't understand why in interview uh, situations we want people to feel really stressed and overwhelmed because for you as, as, a, as a job seeker it, it, did it? Did you feel like you had an unfair advantage perhaps by having them advance or was it just the same situation but you just felt a lot calmer and more in control? I felt a lot calmer and more in control because I didn't have to pretend, I, it, I just didn't feel like I had to guess um, kind of what they might want to hear or know. I could, you know, respond to questions kind of more thoughtfully. I could think about what I wanted to share with them, what might be relevant what I'm you know how I yeah is that just what I'd want to respond what respond with instead of kind of going in they're going oh my god I hope they ask me this because this is the thing that I've prepared for um, and I found that really helpful 
And you try and squeeze in answers, don't you? Because you're like, I've prepared this and I need to say it. So they haven't asked anything about it, but I'm going to try and get it in anyway. Yeah, because that's what I've got locked into my memory. (laughs) It's so hard to move away. And yes, to your point as well, like there's nothing more frustrating than doing your CV and then having to do a covering letter or answering loads of questions, which is just basically CV repeated 50 times uh, so if yeah. everyone would stop doing that please that would save mm. a lot of time um to your point actually about you know the, the time that it goes into um recruiting uh, for a role we've actually had a, a question from the audience already that I'll just jump into just because it's there um but Alex has asked that it can be tricky for individuals to give recruitment from within the organization because it you know requires a lot of uh, time and, and thought and care as well when you have like your full-time job that you still need to do what advice do you have for those in in that position and uh, and Nene and um and Emily this one might be for for you folks um specifically but if anyone else wants to jump in in that with with an example that would be great uh Nene sorry Nikki could you just give just a little bit of context to the question I didn't quite understand the first the first part of it yeah of course so she's saying that the because it's a full-time role to do recruitment well and mm-hmm. you still have a full-time job that you need to do alongside that. What advice do you have for somebody that still has their full-time job and requirements when they have to then recruit on top of that? Because if you put in, let's just imagine that we start doing all of these things properly, you know, having um, uh, taken time to review recruitment processes, having conversations with people in advance and and uh, and keeping in touch and adding a human touch. How can you give enough thought and, and time to that process as, as well as, you know, doing your job alongside it? Okay, uh, this is quite a, quite a lot in that question. I think I think one of the first things I would say is whatever findings that you have from doing your particular recruitment uh, role, to have it recorded, um, you'll be amazed at some, some of the larger companies that we've worked with when they've told us the recruitment challenges they've had. We're like, okay, where is the data behind that? Where is how have people spoken to you about it? Is any of it recorded? And they've said no, and we're like, well, you know, if you haven't got it recorded, you're constantly having to remember some of the challenges that you are having you may have actually then solved that challenge and then you can't you can't remember it because nothing is written nothing is written down or or recorded so I think that's the first thing that I would say I also think it's it's wise for a company to invest in supporting as well I know it's it's a big job and it's a difficult job as well to to put it just on one person I think is 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 a lot and that tends to happen not only recruitment but obviously also with DNI as well. So I think it's worth getting some support and investing in some support. And the person who's doing recruiting, again, can then say, okay, this is the support that I need. This is the help that, that I need as, as well. So I think it's those two things that you can work together in tandem that will kind of like help with that particular challenge. Is that what was meant? Is yeah, yeah, meant? absolutely spot on. Yeah, there was quite a lot in that question thrown together. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people that this might be new to, so let's just take the example of, of Louise that was pulled into recruitment in the middle of last year. What support is available for people out there if they do need help with, with recruitment? Sorry, something me myself. Um, so I think from our perspective on that particular question about how do you make time, um, we, as a business, we decided to defer a lot of projects because we needed to focus on on hiring people. We realised that if none of us hired the teams, then we wouldn't have the springboard to do the next chapter of the journey. So, um, Chester, our CEO, made it very clear to all leaders across the business that hiring was our number one priority and that we wouldn't be able to get to the next level of the business if we didn't all focus on that. For So, for myself, within one quarter, I hired um, six marketing team members and uh, it was... Uh, 
took lots of time, highly time consuming, um, but um, really paid off because now I feel like I'm resourced. I have the right size of team. Um, in terms of kind of getting up to speed, um, there's some great books out there. Um, I'm a big fan of top grading. There's a great Harvard uh, Business Review article out there about it. I'm currently reading Who, uh, which is a really good book about recruitment and how to recruit. Um, I'm actually going to be taking a course as well uh, with the CIPD accredited course um, about the foundations for HR. So um, I like learning lots of different ways. LinkedIn learning is incredible as well. Uh, and then we just we have retrospectives as well internally. So once a month, all hiring managers meet together. We have a spreadsheet. We go through actions from last time. And um, it's kind of why we set up this as well. Like a, a problem shared um, is, is a problem half. And I think uh, on the candidate side, I used to be a volunteer for Young Women's Trust. It's just the most incredible charity for anyone. Um, so young women and has a CV and wants to send that over for them to give feedback on. Um, because quite often all all the elements there, all the skill sets, the attributes will be there, but it's the way that you present that material to um, to a recruiter who has, you know, a limited amount of time to go through everything every single CV. So I highly recommend them. Um, and there's great platforms as well, like We Are Stripes, that you can go to uh, for some help as well. Just a little plug for that one. Louise, where have, um, when you've been recruiting for your roles, have they come from within the charity sector or have they come from outside of? Um, yeah, real mix. Um, we, we kind of sit at the intersection of technology um, and the charitable space. And um, so, so we get a real mix of candidates. It's brilliant for us to get people from the charity sector because they understand uh you know the challenges of our customers so that is fantastic mm -hmm. it's also good to get people from tech companies who have been there done it before understand how scale-ups work um, move incredibly uh, quickly so yeah a real, a real mixed candidates actually which I think is really lovely but I think you have to be really candid um, candid about that in interview experience so uh, when we're talking to candidates we're always really clear that we kind of sit in the hybrid of the, of the two worlds. So we're a tech for good company and the growing ecosystem of, of tech for good companies, which are brilliant because we have the power to change uh, the world through technology. Uh, but also, you know, we want to super serve our customers. We want to understand charities. Um, we're a really supportive environment. And I think um, charities can also be, you know, incredibly commercially driven as well. So uh, it's really nice when the two come together, actually, and it's quite an unusual culture, um, I, I think, personally. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. And do you see, obviously, since you're going through like the recruitment practices beyond the sector and inside the sector, like what key differences are you seeing there, both in terms of the response to these roles um, and the, the, the methods, the methods used? Um, yeah, really, really good question, actually. I think um, when I've looked at charities recruitment processes, I think a lot of them um are really, really well organised. They have candidate packs, they have closing dates, uh, they have very clear processes, they have the opportunity to speak to CEOs. Um, so I think um, from what I've seen, a lot of it uh, is really excellent. And I know there's a lot of people like, um, you know, Show the Salary, for instance, who are really pushing for positive change within the sector. Um, tech companies, um, I think I've seen like a variance of um, of, uh, of different hiring um, standards within the industry. I think it can be a merry, um, and I'm, I, I don't mean to be stereotypical in any way, I think it can be quite um, a masculine uh, environment sometimes. And tech companies tend to be quite swayed towards um, a higher rate of, of male to female, uh, whereas charities slightly more even or perhaps um, more female. So I think you, you do see naturally um, a, a slight shift in balance there as well um, in terms of kind of culture and things like that but um i do think tech companies are, are changing a lot i think when i first started it was all about having a pool table 
firm and playing ping pong and for me that's not culture um that's just a really nice benefit that when you come into work you can play you know pool with your mates um after work um for me it's it's not about that it's about the culture it's how you treat one another how you talk to one another so uh, i'm not sure if that quite answers your question but might be a bit of an insight into the the two different worlds absolutely yeah and let's change that because now we are two females at least in the uh, in the in the tech uh, space so let's uh, let's change that definitely uh, and I have made a note of there just to come back to that discussion around the diversity part because we, we spoke about this um, before today went live and I know there's some um, people on the panel today that have been doing great work in that area but also I will come to um, that question around what good culture does look like now then and especially like in this post-COVID world where people want to start working for organisations where they feel like they're making a, a positive difference. So we'll come on to that in, in just a moment. Um, but before we do, uh, somebody else that's had a great experience with recruiting beyond the charity sector, uh, Nene. Um, and we've spoke and worked uh, be- together before um, on different uh, recruitment marketing and ways that people can uh, make this go further, see more exciting and just actually recruit some people into roles where they're like, yes, I can work there. That seems like a great place to to be. Can you tell us a bit more about the work that you do with your We Are Stripes clients um, and the recurrent issues that you support them on? Yeah, sure. No worries. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning of this um, webinar, um, the pillars of Stripes, the three kind of like pillars we work with are visibility, um, consultation, education and then recruitment. And the reason we do that is because one does feed into into the other. Um, when I say when we say visibility, we mean visibility in in various in various ways. So the first thing is the visibility of talent. When we first um, started working with we are when we put together we are stripes, and the first eighteen months we spent literally just going from company to company to company to company, asking them what is the issue that you have with hiring diverse talent. What do you think is your the, the issue that you feel that you're you're having? And as I've said, every company is different, but there was one thing that came out across all across the board. Everyone said the same thing. And they said that they didn't know where to go to find diverse talent. They just they just didn't know. They were using their same kind of like methods, like the same job uh, boards that they will be using. And then they will be using um, their own recruiters as well. And they, that those recruiters had their own pools of talent. So basically, they were going to the same pools of talent over and over again in the same way, and then we're wondering why we couldn't get um, why they couldn't get um, the uh, diverse talent. So when we went into to work with uh, with these companies, the first thing we said is like, hey, you need to understand the landscape now because the landscape has changed. It changes generationally. It just it just does that. It changes now, and it's especially in terms of creative roles, which is where we kind of we kind of work. Creative. Creative roles have to be um, have to be uh, presented differently because they're asking for slightly different uh, skill sets from, say, uh, te- technical. Um, so in terms of the visibility of talent, we we said to them, look, they have many, many kind of like closed creative groups. This is how millennials and Gen Zers, this is how they communicate. So you have to understand that that way of communicating uh, communicating and then go into those spaces. And then you will find that it, it won't be as difficult because I've had companies come to me and say, oh, I can't find, say, a black copywriter. And I'll be like, well, my black copyright list is like as long as my arm. I don't struggle with that because I know where copywriters will, will go to kind of like hang out and where they look for, for jobs and recommendations, a lot of it is, is word of mouth. So that's the visibility of talent. But then also you have the visibility of roles as well. And then I feel this is where a lot of companies, especially slightly older ones, do actually kind of like fall down on because digital roles are always evolving. And there seems there was there was a kind of like a, a way that all the kind of like uh, creative roles or digital roles were just lumped into media. It's like, oh, it's a media role and, and that's it. That's it. And it goes out. And it's like, no, there's 
so many layers to one. Well, first of all, you don't call it media. First, there's there's so many layers to a creative role, whether it's copywriting, whether it's art direction, whether it's creative direction, which is creative technologist. It, there's there's loads of different um, types of roles. So we do go into companies and we educate them on the types of roles that are out there. And then the thirdly, in terms of um, the visibility of companies as well, because you can have someone, say, coming out of university or been in the sector for maybe, say, one to two years or three to four years, and they'll know about all of the, the, big, the big brands, but they won't necessarily know about the agencies that look after those look after those brands. So I'll say to them, oh, have you seen this, this advert? It's done by Sainsbury's. And like, yeah, I've seen it. It's lovely. But I'll say, well, do you know the agency behind it? And they're like, there's an agency behind it? So they didn't know. So again, we will go into companies and we'll say you need to make yourself more visible. So when you are putting out a job role, put out a little bit about your company, what you do, who you've serviced, maybe a little bit about your history. It doesn't have to be long, but it just has to be done in such a way that it's it, it can make your, the job role attractive. Um, case in point, when um, speaking with Open, I knew when I met them, I knew all about, say, their competitors or their uh, um, companies that were just like them. But I hadn't I haven't heard of them. And then they were like, oh, well, but we were the company that did this particular campaign. And I said, well, that's what needs to go into your communication, because that campaign was like loved, loved by, by everyone. So in terms of visibility, it's those things. Then in terms of the education's, education side, for me, it's uh, we've seen a lot of issues with language when it comes to job roles. So we've had it on, two spe- on like both sides of the spectrum. We've had one company that thought that the best way to get diverse talent was to put a lot of slang into their uh, into their job role, which is, you know, really patronizing and slightly unprofessional if you actually think about it. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where it's super corporate. And then again, with the issue about not explaining the role properly, they'll be asking for, say, someone to, to do social media, and then they'll be list, listing technical skills like JavaScript and HTML and everything else. And it's like, do you actually quite understand what it is that you're asking for? Because if someone sees this list of technical skills and and all these other skills that you want, and it's under the banner of social media, they're going to look at you and say, okay, this either this company doesn't quite understand the role, or they don't know what they're looking for, and that can be off-putting. So that's the sort of thing that that's the sort of consultancy that we do when we go into companies. But language is a is a big issue, so that's one of the first places that we start. Cool. They're, they're great. And uh, yes, again, I can I can spot that and identify that because I think it, with charity organisations, we we need to be better at, at storytelling and we need to obviously share a lot when it comes to fundraising. But there's quite a lot that we can do around sharing, you know, why organisations are great to work for, the, the impact that it can have on on the world. Uh, and again, you know, as more people are starting to look for more meaning, meaningful work there, that, that can work well for us. I think sometimes it comes down to them not being um confident to do that and perhaps it's something that we could get better at but i picked up on your point as well about the going to the people that you know and we've spoken about that before haven't you um and and that obviously can create the same issues of uh oh i i know such and such and we'll get them in and then all of a sudden you have like this all white all middle-aged man uh senior leadership team uh and it's just not creating any change Um, (laughs) can i just add another point Yes, please. Yeah, because that's that's again, and nepotism is is rife. It is absolutely rife. And again, one of the things that we do with with We Are Stripes is go in and it's speaking to the company and telling them why nepotism is is a bad thing. So it's not like it's like oh, you know, I want to have a say a social media manager or animators like my friends friends you know 
uh, daughter's cousin's uh, boyfriend can can do that and then it doesn't come down to merit it doesn't come down to the skill set it comes down to the you know who you know I'll be honest obviously the, the way that it works in a creative, especially in the creative sector is a lot of it is down to who you who you know but you can broaden that horizon by making sure that it's the skills that you're looking for and not because they're just connected to a, a certain person but it have it's 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 a lot is that that I'm I'm Breaking that apart is, is is a lot because it's quite it's almost like ingrained as, as it were. Yeah, it takes work and we have to graft through. And I think again, that's where the challenge or the issue comes from because it takes that work and it's easier to do the other things. So they don't do it. And then hopefully if we keep having conversations like this and push it forward, then change has to happen um because we because we can force it to happen. Um so thank you so much about that. Um what can people do to get that balance right then? Because if a team isn't um, diverse and they do want to improve that for for the good reasons that that we know for having diverse um, teams can bring, what can they do to position their roles in an ethical way whilst being really like open and transparent about what the real situation is in their teams um, to, to to bring people uh, through? No, no. Do you want I to think. Take that one? Yeah. No worries. Yeah. I think. Uh, be honest. I think be honest. I've been very impressed when we have gone into companies and they have said to me, look, Nene, it's it's like 99.9% reoccurring Caucasian here. You know, um, we don't we don't really know what to do. And I think uh, I think that humility is 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 the way to go with that. So even if you're putting out a job role, um, there's nothing wrong with you saying even at the bottom and saying, look, we are committed to diversity, but we're not where we want to be. Because what's happening now is that people put almost this generic kind of like, yeah, we're committed to diversity, et cetera, et cetera. But a candidate can just look at your job role and then go to your website. And if they look at your website and they look at the whole senior team and the whole senior team is Caucasian, then obviously you've kind of contradicted yourself. And that has been very off-putting. When we have spoken to candidates, they were like, but I went to have a look at their social media. I went to have a look at their website and I didn't see anyone like me. So I didn't feel comfortable applying for that company. But on your job roles, like I said, be, be honest and say, yes, you can have your little kind of like, um, section where it says we are committed to diversity, which I'm sure they are, but at the same time say we are not where we are supposed supposed to be, and we don't want you to, uh, we don't want that to deter you from working for us because we are looking, we are looking to change. Brilliant, thank you. And yes, that statement piece on there is is spot on. Thank you for sharing, uh, Amari. Yeah, I just wanted to add in second Nikki's Nikki, sorry, uh, Nene's point and say that um, divert honesty goes a long way, but also. If you are making a commitment to EDI, like a lot of charities are doing, please show us or tell us how you're doing that. Um, I think there's times when I've looked for, looked at jobs and, you know, it says, oh, you know, we, we really want, we've made a commitment to EDI, but there's, you know, we don't know, there's no way how. And I think what worked at LCF is they have a page on their website where you can meet the team. And it also includes description of, of some of the interests and hobbies that people have. So, you know, I can find common ground with people that maybe... I don't have any kind of uh, commonality with diversity wise, but, you know, we might both enjoy cycling or be interested in tackling, um, you know, inequality. And I think those things make such a big difference. And I, like Nene said, have been uncomfortable when they say, you know, come and work for our team, but there's absolutely no diversity. It's very off-putting. Um, and I had a, I had an experience where I went to work at a place that championed diversity on the in, in terms of their content. Um, but, Actually, on the back end in the office, there was no one that looked like me, even though everyone that they championed was extremely ethnically diverse and came from all these different backgrounds. Um, so I think, yeah, show us how you're make, making that, you know, action in that commitment. 
Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing your experience on that as well. Um, I've just popped a link into the chat box from the conversation that we had with Martha and Donna from last year around recruiting diverse talent, just so that um, conversation can continue as well, because it's so important to have. And I'm aware we've only got 10 minutes left on this one. Um, but that is that's brilliant. Thanks so much. Emily, you, you had something that you wanted to pitch in on, on this one as well. Yeah, I think I'm um, part of the EDI committee for digital fundraising and they've come up with some great recruitment guides. And I think it's exactly on that language and that diversity and being open. And I've been challenged in the past on things like putting the phrase excellent verbal skills, which is such a generic one that's in so many job descriptions, whereas actually for people with a stammer, it's what do you actually mean? Do you actually mean effective communicator in which case you don't need excellent verbal skills to be able to do that and that's much more inclusive so it's just tiny little tweaks around that around language that I think can really help not put those barriers in place that's great does anybody else have any other kind of recruitment terminology or practices that they just want to get in the bin like what do you see and you're like oh my god they're doing that again I, I think, again, is what I mentioned um, in terms of like, you know, putting the, the, the diversity kind of like bit at the at the bottom. Um, but like I said, the, the worst offenders have been with the skills and not understanding what the skills. I mean, just um, Emily, just Emily's point is actually on point <laughs> um, because we've had we've gone into companies where they have they have mixed up a want to have or nice to have with a job requirement. So we had one agency where their job requirement for their, it was quite a senior role, but their job requirement was for them to have won, a, won an award. And I was like, I did, actually, it was so confusing to me that I did actually ask them, is there a reason why you have done that? Because there are many, many brilliant um, senior creatives who will do amazing work for you, but they just haven't happened to win an award. And that could be for a plethora of reasons. So I think it's it's worth having to think about what you actually require for the job role and then list that and then nice nice to haves as well. And with the nice to haves, I think keep them to keep them to a minimum because you know how it is when somebody, especially for especially for um for women, when we look at a job role, we can look at all the all the, the um the list of skills and then if we've don't have one, then we're like, okay, we're not going to apply for it. And that's what we've seen statistically. Um, but uh, with males, like, okay, I can do half of it, so I'm going to apply it, uh, apply it anyway. So I think it's just that sort of demarcation between this is what the job actually requires and this is what we would, would like to have. That's something that really needs to work on. Fab, thank you. And thank you for highlighting that bit about when women are reading job descriptions as well, because that's really important. And we've had a few of you in the chat be like, actually, I have loads of things that I want to, to get in the bin. Um, Amari, what was what was yours? Yeah, I don't know how popular it's going to be recruiters on low kind of salary budgets, but um, having on a low kind of salary, I just think it's taken the absolute mick. And I would love to see people stop doing that because that is two jobs and you know if you're paying 21k it's not okay i'd love to see that go in the bin today now get that in the bin what was it for the beginning parks i think i missed you a little bit at the beginning there sorry it was just it was just to say that um having um you know two roles so social media officer and data officer those are two separate roles yeah and we get that a lot in the charity sector don't we where it's like do more with less and it's like no you need more <laughs> like there, there needs to be a, a yeah. sustainable and I don't know how popular that is going to be for recruiters you know on with kind of small salary budgets but it's not fair to candidates 
Yeah. The need to hear it. That's what today's about. So thank you for sharing. Joe, what's yours? Yeah, there was one application that I, I got halfway through putting forward. And then I just thought this is so atrocious. I'm just not going to follow. I'm not going to submit this application because the process was so horrible. Um, so it's really arduous. Um, but also included on the advert wasn't the fact that you have to sign up for a specific account on their website in order to apply, put in all your details as if you were filling in a form. And then at that point, and you couldn't save it and exit, you then had to answer eight questions of 300 words each addressing the key responsibilities and how you mentioned it. And that wasn't mentioned in the advert for you to be able to pre-prepare. Um, and then in the in the job pack, it was really detailed, um, but it didn't state, and you found this out during the application process that they had this little clause that said appointment may be made at an initial salary level of 90% or 95% of the proficient salary, depending upon skills and abilities as assessed during the recruitment process. Get that in the bin. That's hideous. Hideous. Thank you. Thank you. That's ace. Uh, Louise, you had one that you wanted to pitch in on? Um, just arrogance, like thinking you're the best company in the world with the best job in the world. And it's very much a two-way process and you have to listen to one another and the candidates should have the opportunity to ask questions too. Um, so yeah, I just when you read a job description, you think this company really thinks it's like the best place in the world ever. It makes me feel a little bit um, sick in my mouth actually. <laughs> what a great what a great way to end. I was just saying that I'm gonna start getting the bin blog. But just about loads of things, but I'm going to start off with with recruitment. Um, so we are at time now. Just want to say again a huge thank you to everybody for sharing uh, today. It's been so fantastic, and really appreciate you being open and honest about your experiences. Um, one final thought from each of you uh, before we close: If there is someone, which I hope there is, who's attending this webinar today, whose next responsibility is to hire a fantastic human uh, to join their team, what is the next thing that they need to do straight after logging off this webinar to get it? right um i'll just go around so nene if we if we start with you please yeah i, I will say um again uh, go straight for straight for the language because for us with with our research and with our experience that has been one of the biggest um, issues that we've had so language for the for the job roles and also it's worth saying at this point that anything that you uh, implement, make sure that it's, sorry, anything that you say, make sure it's implemented and carried through. Because again, companies have a tendency to say all these nice things online and everything else, even in their um, job packs and, and job kits and what, what have you, but then it's not followed through into the rest of the company. Um, DNI, especially in recruitment, is not just something that's just for HR, it encompasses the entire company. So just ensure that there is, there is a follow through with everything that's implemented into the rest of the company. Fab. Thank you so much. Emily? I think I'd say be human and be flexible, whether that's remote, job shares, condensed hours. I think the landscape has changed. So I think it's really important that you are open and definitely not London office first anymore. That's one of my things to get in the bin, London office first. You are like, I was going to say you're anti-London, but that's an unfair thing. Out no. of context, that might have sounded wrong. But yeah, the, the London centricity of like, you have to work here. There's so much talent beyond. I mean, look at us, Emily, Northeast. The yeah, talent I mean, here. Yeah, I had my lunch on the beach yesterday, so why would I want to work in central London? Cool. No, lovely. Thank you so much. Uh, Amari, what's your what's your closing closing piece? Uh, show the salary, always, please. <laughs> so simple done. And it's so frustrating that people still aren't there, but let's keep pushing for it. Uh, Joe? 
Yeah, I would say revisit your job description and person spec and really challenge yourself. Ask yourself why. Why am I looking for that for every single point and is it justified? Sweet. Thank you. And Louise? Yeah, just um, get everyone on the same page. What is the single mission of this role? Um, let's not look for a unicorn that does every single thing in the world. <laughs> it's not possible. So what do you, what does everyone internally want this one person to do? And the autonomy is with the hiring manager. Um, and secondly, focus on the long term. It's really hard. You've got recruitment targets. You're like, boom, boom, boom. Must get the candidates and tell the story. You know, take time to, to get your employee value proposition together as well. You have to balance the long and, and the short of it, definitely. Fab, thank you. And my request uh, to anyone recruiting is to actually take what you've learned and use it. I think there's so much information and uh, insights that are out there that sometimes we can get stuck in a cycle of I have to keep learning, I have to keep learning, I have to keep getting better, it has to be perfect. And then we're not actually implementing any of the positive changes. So my request would be actually take what these awesome people have said today and actually do something with it. And I've actually kept a time as well. Simon will be backstage somewhere being like, oh my goodness, this is this is a New Year's miracle. Um, so I just want to say a huge thank you uh, to all of our panelists who've joined us on the webinar today. It's been fantastic catching up and it's a great way to start the year. So if you are a job seeker, we should definitely be holding these recruiting organisations to account for everything that you've heard here today because you were worth it right from the diversity inclusion right up to being paid for your worth and not being asked too much of you. You absolutely deserve that and you should be working in places that respect um, and, and make that possible and if you're a recruiter please just let's start small but let's just start somewhere. I want to say thank you again to our friends at Enthuse for making today possible for inspiring this session and for sponsoring this session and we will keep the conversation going as well so we'll take some of the points that we've heard today we'll keep sharing those through in our communications and we as uh, ourselves as an organization as well we, we hope to grow and we're going to be doing this in practice uh, as well so thank you to you all for joining us today we will have webinars every single month of this year in addition to our virtual conferences so hopefully we we can see some of you there. The recording of this event will be shared with you ideally uh, within within the, the week and that will be sent uh, to your um, to your inbox and you can just do like a little subtle forward it on to whoever's uh, in HR. But let's keep the conversation going. You can catch up with us on Twitter, which is at Fund Everywhere or Fundraising Everywhere, which is on LinkedIn. And if you want to host a fantastic virtual event like this, you can do so on our Everywhere Plus platform and you can find us at everywhereplus.com. Thank you again, everybody, for joining us today. Thanks, panellists, and we'll see you at the next one. Bye.